Welcome into another edition of Word on the Street. Word on the Street is brought to you by Caesars Maryland. Download the Caesars app today to get in on some great Super Bowl specials using Caesars app promo code Russell Picks. That's R U S S E L L Picks, P I C S. We'll provide Maryland betters with a $1,500 first bet for the Super Bowl or any other game this week. Any losses will be met with an immediate refund via a bet credit. Add even and if you bet even less than that, say even $100 on your first wager, you will still receive $100 in bet credit. That's Caesars, Maryland. Download it today. Enter promo code Russell Picks. Today on Word on the Street, I'm joined by Jess Rebeck from The Athletic. Jeff, how are you? Good, Tony. How you doing? Good. Good to hear from you. Hey, um, you recently posted a couple of really, really great stories on The Athletic, and I want you to let our listeners know towards the end how they can sign up for The Athletic. But one of the uh, Ravens, uh, one of which was uh, on the Ravens' uh, offensive coordinator search, and another on a really n- a great nostalgic look back at Super Bowl Forty Seven. But before we get to those two topics, I-, I wanted to ask you a few other questions. And I know that you, before being the beat guy for the Ravens, you spent how many years with the Orioles? Oh, um, it was about, hmm, I think it was right around 2004. And so it was about six, six, seven years with the Orioles. I I, I covered some bad teams, Tony. Um, <laughs> you know, like I think my first year on the beat was, uh, you know, the year they were in first place for a couple months and they had like the five all-star starters, not starters, but I mean, Tejada and Brian Roberts and Mora and, BJ Ryan and like they were in an all Oriole all-star infield. And then to share was the first baseman. And I just remember that all-star game. Everyone was kind of fantasizing over their infield looking like that. So that was my first year that went downhill quick, obviously. And uh, my last year, right. Was when Buck, uh, you know, Buck was kind of coming aboard. So I kind of caught the uh, beginning of Buck and and you could see him starting to, you know, make an imprint and turn things around. So yeah, about six, seven years I was on the Oriole beat. So you know a little bit about the organization, how they operate. And I, I know things aren't always static, and they do change over time. But th- this Angelos family feud that we've been hearing about in, in throughout the media and online and whatnot, and we just heard this week that at least in the courts, it seems to be over. And, and you cover the team, like you said, for about six or seven years. How do you interpret all these legal calisthenics and the team not opting to sign that five-year extension on their Camden Yards lease? Well, yeah, I, I well, first of all, I was kind of uh, gratified that they settled that and, and that, uh, you know, the lawsuit with the family was, uh, you know, was dropped um, or whatever, settled, whatever one of words you use uh, to describe it. It just it just would have gotten uglier. I, I mean, you know, you just so much stuff would have had to come out and, and all this stuff. That would have, you know, probably been difficult for people to see and the family squabble. I don't think anyone needs to know or read about that, really. So, uh, you know, I think it's great. You know, I don't know what what happened to solve it, but um, this is an exciting time with the Orioles, you know, given their talent base. And and I think you saw last year they they were fun to watch. And I was hoping they do a little more this offseason kind of disappointed they didn't get like a middle of the order bat or top of the rotation pitcher. Um, It seemed like kind of more of the same, you know, I think they're a little better, but I still think they're, 
you know, uh, heavily dependent on young players kind of becoming stars. And that's always tough business. But uh, the reality is they are certainly headed in the right direction. Even a skeptic can see that. And and to have this hovering over their heads at a time where people should kind of be uh, excited again about the team and the direction would have been tough. So I'm glad that's settled. Uh, But yeah, obviously, Tony, it was ugly for a while there. Um, We all saw the, you know, the decline in the short term lease thing. Um, you know, they seem true to their word that, that this is because they want to, you know, get a, a longer workable, a longer agreement that's going to work for both parties. And I, I guess we'll, we'll hold them to their word and hope that's the case. Um, you know, so, you know, the one thing getting settled helps, though, that's for sure. But there's still so much, you know, the mass in, uh, in the, the uh, mass in disagreement and dispute. And they're probably not getting an all-star game until that thing goes away. And just one thing after the other. And uh, at a time where the team on the field is starting to become something you get excited about it. It really is a shame. I, I You know, when I covered the beat. I had a really good in relationship with Peter Angelos, one of the most fascinating men I've ever covered. Difficult at times, yes, but being difficult also made him really good at what his job was, uh, you know, being an attorney and all that. Definitely, you could see some of his good qualities. You definitely also could see some of the things that made him a real challenge to deal with. But, uh, you know, probably you know, the most fascinating person I ever covered in terms of trying to get to know and, and, and what he allowed and, and, and all that stuff. So you don't like to see any of it. I, I I know there's some bitterness towards the fans about the family and all that. I get that. I'm not get, kind of getting involved in that. But uh, in terms of just hoping for the best for the Orioles, wanting to see them head in the right direction because it's good for the city. Um, you know, hopefully uh, this will put some stuff behind them and, and uh, you know, that'll continue and the focus can be uh, what's on the field. You know, you mentioned the word skeptic, Jeff, and maybe I'm a little tarnished because I lived through the Colts moving out of town in 1984. Mm-hmm. And and when I see that that lease wasn't extended for five years, I, I get the other side of it that they wanted they're looking for a longer term lease. But when they didn't do that, this uh, family feud of sorts is no longer part of the equation. I thought, you know what? They're selling the team. Hmm. And yeah, yeah. But, I mean, it's it's. You know, again, I, I understand that, and and, and I, I don't want to say that they've earned that, but it's just like I think that's going to be out there. Uh, you know, I know how much the city of Baltimore means to the family or has meant to the family. I don't know John and Lou very well, uh, barely know them at all. I did know how much it meant uh, to Peter and the city. Um, and you know, I think it's fair. I, I mean, there's just, there's a number of dots to connect there that could lead you to that. And, and, uh, you know, let's hope it doesn't come to that, but, uh, you know, I hear you. It's certainly, uh, skeptical is a good word. Um, they've been probably kind of consistent in their messaging, but, uh, a a new lease and a long-term agreement would certainly, uh, make a lot of people feel better about things. I'm sure. It really would. And just, you know, like I said, I'm a little jaded because of past experiences and the fact that Peter Angelos just isn't available. And I don't really even understand how deathly ill he is, but, you know, it's just one of those things, I guess, when it's, when you don't have knowledge, you start to fill in the blanks with your own speculation. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, yeah, totally. And just it just seemed like one thing after the next, right? I mean, you had the Masson deal and and then came the, you know, the 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 issues with Masson and and that's still going on and then came the, you know, the family uh stuff that got ugly and went public and then the lease and yeah, you know, I I get that and 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 there is scar tissue in Baltimore uh when you talk about franchises franchises moving. I mean, that that's undeniable. So I I totally understand. I you know, last year I went to a couple, I love baseball. I mean, I honestly like, you know, I, I like baseball and my wife loves baseball. She used to work in baseball. So, and when I still like every year, I make sure I go to opening day and I get jitters just being out there and just seeing opening day in Baltimore. It never, ever gets old to me. I just love being in the stadium. And I remember Tony and I, I, I go with one of my friends from high school. He lives up in, uh, the York uh, Harrisburg area and he comes down we've done it ever every year since I've been off the beat pretty much except maybe one or two years we've gone and and I just love it and I remember you know like I follow guy you know Rockabaco from Masson's a really good friend of mine and and uh you know the Orioles writers from the Sun and Dan Connolly I work with athletic has been a long time friend so I follow him as what they write but I was sitting there on opening day last year and these guys are running down the orange carpet. I'm like, I've never heard of half these guys. I'm like, and it was just awful. I'm like, this team is going to lose 120 games at least. And, and, you know, even of all the bad Oriole teams I covered, I never had it. I never covered a hundred plus game loser, which is pretty remarkable. I mean, it used to be real hard to lose over a hundred games and then to watch them last year and, and, you know, my son is, is still five, but he, you know, he loves the Oriole bird and he loves going out to the stadium. And like, it just kind of came cool. I'd watch the games with them, you know, it, and, you know, to see the guys come up and the excitement around Rushman and, and Gunner and, you know, others, uh, you know, it, it just was it just made you feel good getting into this offseason. So you'd hate for anything to kind of ruin that. Uh, there's nothing better than a packed house at Camden Yards. Um, I've I've been to almost every baseball stadium there is through my job. Some of the newer ones I haven't gone to. I still have never been at a nicer stadium than Camden Yards. There's been some comparable, uh, but still my favorite. And uh, uh, let's hope, uh, you know, they figure this out and they keep going in the right direction on the field because there's, uh, you know, it's a great place to to experience a winner. And, and I'm sure people fill those seats if they start winning consistently. I really hope so, too, because I think if they're able to turn it around and produce a consistent winner, it may be in part a rebirth of the city, and yeah. there might be more some some more focus on that to fix the things that have gone with, wrong with the city. But uh, last this past weekend, I know you did a retrospective piece on Super Bowl Forty Seven, but this past weekend on ESPN they aired the Bullies of Baltimore on their ESPN acclaimed Thirty for Thirty series. Your your takeaways from that, Jeff? Uh, it was fun, you know. Like it's funny, Tony. I'm on the. I was on the other side of it, you know. I I was in college at Loyola, uh, you know, in Baltimore, during that year. Uh, I guess I was a junior there, and I grew up a huge Giant fan. You know, my my parents had season tickets to the Giants, and I'd go to games as a kid. And and before, you know, now, you know, as I got into this business, when you start covering football, kind of the fandom of a team gets beaten out of you. You know, you just don't, I, you know, the Ravens, uh, the Ravens played the Giants quite a 
a few times. I never think of, oh, this is my childhood team. Just not like that anymore. But back then, before I was in the business, I was a huge Giant fan. And that was so painful being in that city, uh, being in the city of Baltimore and going to school here uh, while they were winning that uh, Super Bowl and just embarrassing the Giants. I mean, that game should have been 50 to nothing. I mean, it was varsity JV. Uh, but, you know, being covering the Ravens for as long as I have, uh, you know, my f- my first year was, you know, during the 2011 season. So I was, you know, well past that. But, you know, I've obviously done stories on the 2000 team. I've gotten to know quite a few of those guys. I know I, I know most of the stories from just kind of talking to people covering the team and who are on it. So uh, it was fun, man. Uh, what a kind of the team like I wrote a story on their I guess it was their 15th anniversary maybe his 20th anniversary of that team a couple years ago and it was kind of on just kind of that team was the last team of its time you know just how they went about things uh the bravado and and I thought we got a good sneak peek of that or, or a good uh you know, revelation of that during the uh documentary I thought it was a lot of fun and interesting um I can't say, and this isn't a criticism, but I can't say I learned a whole lot. You know, I think I've heard most of those stories told. I mean, I, I knew about Corey Dillon tapping out. I've never seen the actual footage until watching that documentary when he did. But yeah, I knew most of those things that were said and talked about and most of those clips, um, you know, but still, as far as just being a fun walk down memory, memory lane, uh, that certainly was that. Yeah, I thought a couple of things that I took away from that was, seeing Trent Dilfer and Brian Billick on the same stage at the same time, because it had been a long time in coming. They've apparently buried the hatchet. And the one thing that a couple of things that Trent Dilfer said, but one of what really stood out was about the playbook that was stolen, that Greg Williams admitted to having <laughs> stolen that. Now that those are in uh, Dilfer's words. I would really like to hear Greg Williams. <laughs> that. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I've heard that story somewhere. I think, Dilfer's told that story before, but I've never heard Greg Williams respond to it. Um, so, yeah, that that was kind of interesting, um, you, you know, seeing that part of it and seeing Dilfer. I mean, it also made, you know, I, I guess like and I think you wrote about this today, uh, Tony. I don't want to take words out of your mouth here, but I would have liked to see a little more attention paid to some of the other guys you know look we know ray lewis is larger than life i'm really glad it didn't become a whole thing on ray because he's got such a uh outsized personality and and you know he's whenever he talks it's kind of the intensity and all that so i wondered if it was going to be a lot about ray I, I didn't think it was in that case but you know there's a lot of player good really good players on that team and i was i know it was on their defense mostly but it was Jonathan Ogden mentioned more than once? I mean, the guy was a first ballot Hall of Famer, and right. I, I saw you note McAllister. I mean, God, he was a he's playing at an All Pro level. Uh, Jamie Sharper didn't get a lot of love. Bulware, Burnett, and McCrary didn't get a lot of love. So, yeah, I mean, I, I enjoyed it. You'd always like to see some of those other guys get a uh, get a little more mentioned, but uh, they had a lot of great material, and uh, you know, you can't you can't you can't please everyone when it comes to getting everyone involved. But that's how fascinating that team was. There's so many different angles and so many different personalities. You know, you mentioned Jamie Sharper, and I thought that it was an incomplete pass. I believe it was intended to Ike Hilliard. And mm. Jamie Sharper absolutely lit up Hilliard. And even Brian Billick was mic'd up saying, oh, they won't go in there anymore. <laughs> I, really, I really thought that that hit 
influenced how Amani Toomer rounded his route that Dwayne Starks jumped and took it for a pick six. So yeah, I, I agree that's interesting. Jamie, yeah. Jamie Sharper wasn't really uh, talked about enough because I thought that that was a game-changing play. And he picked off a tip pass from Ray Lewis, too. Yeah. I, I just Man, that game was like – it was like such an effort for the Giants to even get off the line of scrimmage in that game. You very rarely see mismatches that pronounced. And it's just when I went back, when I did a story on that team, and they they did mention this, and Billick speculated on it. Um, but it was true. It still eats at those guys that there's a seven next to the Giants' name uh, in the score. They so badly wanted to shut out. They still consider themselves having shut the Giants out. But that's still that all those guys bring it up. I McAllister brought it up to me. McCrary brought it up to me. Um, that bothers those guys. And, and and then the other thing it was just you know it was just kind of funny. Like you know they were watching and and Marvin Lewis said this during the documentary. But they were watching the Giants on film this year uh, that week, and they're like, we're gonna kill this team. Like they, they this team has nothing that could even hurt us. And it's just they you know I think McCrary at one point told me he didn't think the Giants were like a top 10 team they played all season. Uh, so they knew that was going to be a mismatch and uh, true to that team's character and how they kind of handled the year. Uh, it, it indeed was, uh, they delivered. And it was, it was kind of fun to kind of relive that, uh, relive that whole season. And obviously it's a shame with the goose thing, you know, you kind of, people kind of were, not that everyone's ever forgotten about him, but people are kind of reintroduced to kind of what a larger-than-life character he really was. And I always thought it was interesting because I went down to that presentation at the Meyerhoff in May mm. when they were filming all of that. And I thought it was really interesting that Ray Lewis is such a magnanimous personality. Just a, he's, a, he's an alpha. But when he and Goose are together, it's almost as if, Ray takes a slight backseat. <laughs> yeah, it's funny you said that because I got like, you know, when Goose was telling a couple stories, Ray was nodding and laughing and they did the cut at the end of the show. And I guess Sarah Goose was trying to hustle Ray and, and you don't see a lot of people talk to Ray like that. And Ray certainly takes it. I mean, those guys got really close. I mean, my understanding was they were in, in, in a couple businesses together. That's how, that's how close those two guys got. So, um, yeah, I, I, and another guy, I I mean, I loved seeing, you know, Jamal, I just loved watching him. He was one of my favorite players to watch just with the physicality. It's it's good to see he was up there and he's he sort of got some recognition. I, I you know, people outside ball people in Baltimore didn't, but I think people outside Baltimore forget sometimes how dominant and physical of a player that 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 Jamal Lewis was. I mean, there's very few things as entertaining as seeing Jamal Lewis in the open field. Um, and, uh, you know, it's good to see him uh, up there on the stage and still have such a strong relationship with the, the organization. Could you see Jamal and Lamar Jackson in the same backfield? Oh, yeah. Talk about picking your poison, right? Wow. <laughs> the way he could – Lamar spreads the field. I mean, he, he made a near Pro Bowl player out of Gus Edwards, <laughs> not to diminish Gus's skills, but Jamal Lewis is a different league altogether. <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, yeah, I mean, the the whole thing with, with Jamal and, and kind of Billick being forced to change his stripes and become a running team and, and, and Dilfer's kind of role and kind of being that game manager, just the uh, – offensive transition uh 
they went through. Um, you know, pretty remarkable, man. I mean, you know, the the Dilfer stuff. And then you got the I remember when I worked on a story about that team and I talked to Tony Banks and man, I mean, he barely will acknowledge he still he was on that team. I mean, he does not want to talk a still to this day. He won't talk about it. Gave his Super Bowl ring away, I believe, to his father. Um, great to talk to. I had a great interview with him. Uh, and he said everything matter of factly. Uh, but man, that still stings how that all went down. And I, I wondered honestly if they'd get into that a little bit in the show. Obviously, Dilfer came away with some hard feelings after what happened after the year. But Tony Banks really had some hard feelings, and and still, as I said, he he, he still he believes they won a Super Bowl with his offense, and and he wasn't the guy to help him do it. He's never quite uh you know removed himself from that that thought process. I remember when Dilfer came out of the game in Super Bowl thirty five, and he had I think fractured his his left wrist or, or finger or something, index finger, and. So he was out of the game for, I think, a series. I was scared to death when Tony Banks was in there. <laughs> I thought, here we go. The game was much closer at the time, too. But I say, here we go. Yeah, yeah. But do you think the Ravens made a mistake not bringing Dilfer back as a starter? No. I mean, I'm one of the – I'm, and I wasn't close to that team, but anybody – a lot of people I've talked to since, you know, and just what I know of it – I think you've got to be – that was such a historically dominant season. Um, and the interview – I have to agree with the interview Ozzie Newsom gave. And it was an old interview that they played. I was actually a little surprised they didn't have any Ozzie Newsom more involved in that. It may have been because Ozzie didn't want to be. That's usually his way to kind of stay, stay off to the side. But, I mean, just to have bank on – them being the same defensive team the next year and just dominating the way they did with all the shutouts, I think that would have been a little too much to ask. And the fact that they knew they were going to have to get significantly better on offense, I don't know if they made the right choice at quarterback. That I, I haven't really gone back and seen their other options at that point and all that. But um, I really can't fault them for believing that they needed to reach another level offensively and Dilfer was not the guy that was going to get him there on a consistent basis. And, uh, you know, the Jamal Lewis injury is probably kind of the start of that. Uh, who knows what who knows what that season would have looked like if, if, if he didn't if he didn't go down in, uh, you know, in training camp. So, Jeff, you're closer to the situation than I am. But from my perspective, you have the Ravens and owner Steve Bishotti. I'm shifting gears here, along with Bishotti's colleagues, doing their best to avoid a 100% guaranteed deal for Lamar. And then on the other hand, you have the NFL PA in Lamar's head without an agent, imploring him to be the so-called, I, I think Damari Smith used the word, bookend to Deshaun Watson in the world of fully guaranteed deals. Your take on the reports that the Ravens and Lamar are as much as $100 million apart. You know, I I want to be respectful to uh, ESPN's Jerry, Jeremy Fowler, who, I, who who does a nice job. And so I didn't hear his original report. What I saw was it kind of get aggregated and tweeted out by, you know, a couple of these NFL guys that, you know, do that stuff and, and capitalize on that and, and put the headline up in their Twitter. So I didn't hear it. But my take on what I saw, Tony, and, and you 
correct me if I'm wrong, was it was more an executive speculating that, yeah, they may be as much as $100 million apart without actually the guy was the executive was actually acknowledging he didn't really know. I, I guess I could have it wrong, but I didn't see that as a report as much as I saw just, you know, uh, uh, um, an executive speculating. So I didn't take too much of it. Um, but look, you know, it's to think that they've been working at this the whole time and they still aren't have a deal and it's still hanging over all their heads and it's still hovering over their offseason activity. I mean, I, I think it'd be naive to think that they're close, that they're just, they're you know, they're hammering this out and, you know, it's only a matter of time before it gets done. I, I, I just... All that matters here, Tony, is this where they're at at the stage, just because you know the Lamar, Lamar, and whoever is doing his deal sure as heck aren't talking, and the Ravens aren't going to talk because they want to, you know, they want to, they don't want to lose the trust with Lamar and that all that. So all that matters is who's going to compromise here. Um, you know, if it's to get a deal, um, you know, fully guaranteed Watson plus deal. That's, that's been the talk of what Lamar's looking for. I just don't see it happening. I, I, I just don't at some point there's going to have to be a decision made. If that's a deal breaker and that's the only thing Lamar would accept, then I, I think you have to start talking about what else is out there and how could they, what they could get for him and all that, Um, you know, and, and, you know, I, I do believe if it's an in interest of getting this done, putting it behind them, the Ravens will will probably be more than willing to, you know, even maybe venture into an area that may be uncomfortable for them that they'd prefer not. But, you know, they know to get it done. But again, there has to be compromise on both sides. And and I just, you know, it, there could have happened, but I just haven't seen any evidence of that uh, since the situation started. Um, and uh you know, you hope Lamar's getting the best advice here. Um, you know, and you hope the Ravens understand the ramifications if they were to move a move from a player of that stature. Uh, but yeah, it's just so hard to see an end game here, Tony. And, and my question is this: like, okay, they they franchise him. What if there's no deal? He winds up showing up late summer and plays. What happens if Lamar has another year like the previous two? Like, what is he looking at the following year? Like, where does that go then? Um, and you hope everybody's asking that question that's involved in these negotiations. It just makes so much sense to figure out how to figure out the need to get a deal done now. And the last thing I want to do is come off as an apologist for the organization. Nobody wants to be looked at as a reporter that's carrying the water for you know, water for Steve Bishotti and Eric DaCosta and, and, and all them. However, the thought that there's this narrative that they didn't want to pay Lamar or they haven't, you know, look, they've, they've, by all, by all indications, they've offered to make Lamar either the second or third highest paid player in football, depending on, on what metric you go by guaranteed up front, all that, like, they made him a massive contract offer. So um, I'm not blaming Lamar for not taking it. That's his choice. But this theory that they haven't shown any interest in paying him, if if the only way that they showed they're serious in paying him is offering the Watson deal, yeah, they haven't done that. But they're not going to do that by all things. So uh, they need to figure out on both sides the 
compromise or we're just going to be sitting here talking about this in, in, in a couple weeks down the road. And, and I don't think anybody wants that. I, it's just this this whole thing, Tony, has created such a black cloud uh, over the organization. And these things, these negotiations are tough. Um, but if the Ravens and Lamar love each other as much as they say they do and, and they want a future together, um, I think everybody recognizes it's time to figure out whether they can make that happen. And 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 kicking the can down the road is not necessarily the, the best approach here if they can't. You know, I think when I, I look at this situation that it's more than just two parties trying to come to an agreement and it's it's muddled by the involvement of the NFLPA, and then you've got Steve Bishotti's colleagues in his year, I'm sure, even if Steve didn't uh, dig his heels in the sand and say, I am not giving him a 100% guaranteed deal, even if that was his notion, sometimes if this goes on long enough, maybe you weaken in that position, but you've probably got his his colleagues saying, don't do it, Steve, and we don't want to set this precedent, even though Cleveland made that mistake. So it's more than just the Ravens and Lamar involved. And, and it brings me to my next question to you is if a agent is involved, you think this is done? That's a good question. I would like its chances better than I do now, but I, I think the whole dynamic between who Lamar is listening to, how much power would the agent have over Lamar and his family um, all that would I, I still I, I would still have to ask. I, I don't know. I you know the dynamic doesn't exist. I don't know um, much about Lamar's mom and, and kind of Lamar's really tight in her circle. Obviously, there's been a couple stories out there, but it's hard to see how to predict and whether an agent would have free reign to really knock this out. But you hope he understands. And, and uh, again, this isn't a one-way thing. Uh, there's plenty on the Ravens too, but just I, I've asked myself that question a lot. Like, okay, what happens if they tag him, right? They don't have a deal. They can't get a deal. He doesn't, he won't back off the, you know, they're all guaranteed and they won't go up any. And he winds up playing. I, I mean, I, I maybe he sits out. I don't know, but he winds up playing. Then he has another kind of May year. He'll look for a couple of weeks like the MVP. Uh, do enough to win, uh, play winning quarterback a couple more weeks. Then he has a couple weeks where he's just not very good and his mistakes are the reason why they lost. And and then, you know, in the end, maybe an injury is mixed in there. Like, where do you go next offseason then? And, and and if that happens for a third straight year, can you really ask to be paid one of the top one or two guys in the league? I don't see how you can. I don't see who's giving you that money after three years. Um, you know, he achieved generational wealth last year. I mean, he made 23 million or whatever it was. Um, so beyond that, you just hope you realize that there's a contract waiting for him that would make him one of the highest paid plays, highest paid players in football. So, uh, you know, you just hope that both sides are able to figure this out and reach an agreement. I, I know the Ravens understand the importance of Lamar in the city to their franchise, to their brand. I know they respect him as a competitor and, and they feel like he fits them so well. It just, it makes so much sense to do the deal, but you know, until you can compromise an agreement and both sides are willing to maybe put some stuff aside, it, it's going to be real tough, you know? So uh, I would love, I'm sure you would love it too. If we could do one of these interviews and not have to talk about it, but it's just impossible because it's just the issue that's hovering over the team and impacting everything. It really is. And if 
you were to fast forward and paint the pictures you just did for next season, if he were to play under the tag, I think that's a disastrous situation. I wouldn't expect anything different than the last two years. And then after that third year like this, then what do you have? What what kind of asset do you have in Lamar that makes him marketable to try to pick up draft picks? It certainly would be less than it is right now. Yeah, I mean, it's just – and even like I think people like, okay, they'll just tag and trade him um, if it comes to that this year. And, and that's very well how may how may play out, but – you know, he's going to have to negotiate himself with his new team, right? I mean, is that like, how quickly is that process going to go? Like, you know, like, it's it's just so many variables of it that make everything so difficult. And the easiest, it's easy for me to say, it's not my money gained or lost, but obviously the easiest thing would do would be to get in Eric DeCasse's office hammer this deal out over a couple days and and you never have to worry about it for several years but i mean look lamar is uber confident in himself and 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 the ravens are you know the ravens can be notoriously difficult to deal with there's obviously a lot of stake here a bad quarterback contrast can set you back for years um but yeah it's easy to look at what could happen with with another year like this you know, I'm curious about his market this year, Tony. I, I know there's people insist there'll be a feeding frenzy, and I see why there could be, but I also see why there's going to be some teams that are going to be a little bit, you know, uh, concerned. Maybe it's too strong of a word, but I, I think there could be a couple teams that are going to be a little bit hesitant to jump in, uh, knowing the whole situation, what went down in Baltimore and, and some of the issues there. So, Oh, man, it's going to be the biggest story in football this offseason. And, uh, you know, Combine is what? Combine's about three weeks away, and I'm anticipating it to be about all Lamar all the time. I'm, not, You know, and that's just the way it is. And I'm, that's not something that either side is probably excited about, but, but that's where we're at. It gets to be old after a while, doesn't it? <laughs> oh, sure does, yeah. So. I'd much rather be talking about the new contract that he signed. They're freed up some cap space that they can go out and get that number one receiver, et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, before we get into to the offensive coordinator and some of the guys that the Ravens are considering, I, I want to focus in on your piece on the athletic that, uh, again, staying with the nostalgic theme, back on February 3rd, 2013, the Ravens won their second Super Bowl, and that was on uh, Super Bowl 47. So I'll start off by asking you this. Where were you when that happened, Jeff? Where was I when when they were won their? Were you at the game? Yeah, yeah, I covered it. That was my, it was my, in 2011, Tony. A couple weeks into the season, um, I was covering the Orioles for the Sun. Jameson Hensley was the Sun's football, uh, Sun's Ravens beat writer. Jameson Hensley had you know taken the job at ESPN, and the Sun you know needed a needed a Ravens writer, and and you know I was in a stretch where. I was kind of tired covering the Orioles. You know, it had been a lot of years, a lot of meaningless games. And I I was just kind of burnt out by all the travel. And I was ready to do something different. I told my editor I didn't make any demands. But I said, look, if there's an opportunity to do something else, I don't even care. At least run it by me because I might be interested. Well, I didn't anticipate Jamison to leave. So all of a sudden I went from covering an Orioles game to being at a a regular season uh, uh, Ravens game as the lead beat guy, which was was just a quick transition 
So yeah, I, I joined the team in two th- joined the team coverage in 2011. So the 2012 Super Bowl season was my first year on the beat, uh, like first full year, you know, and and it was a blur. So yeah, I mean, there's so many memories about that run that that, that I'll never forget. Um, you know, I did a, a, me and another colleague at the Athletic. I also did a, a oral history of the. Uh, you know, 10 year oral history of the mile high miracle. So that's why I didn't write a ton about that in my uh, story the other day, just because I thought we had covered that significantly, but I'll never forget, man. We, you know, after we are done writing, we walked out in mile high and it was so damn cold as you. Aaron Wilson, and there might've been a fourth reporter there. I forgot. We're all, we're just, we're in, we piled into this rental car. We couldn't get the defrost to work. And we were just sitting in the parking lot, freezing our asses off, waiting for the, uh, waiting for the windshield to defrost. And it was just like, it got real quiet in there. We're like, did we just watch that? You know, like, did we just witness that game? Uh, I could not believe that game. And and then to go on and have, you know, what they did to the Patriots uh, in the, in the AFC um, championship. And, and you know what, Tony, in one of the threads of the interviews I did, uh, you know, Yonda and Suggs, both of them talk about that game more fondly than even the Super Bowl. I, I, I think there's just an aspect of the, the conference title game where they felt like there was a score to settle and they needed to put the Patriots in their place. They were the better team the year before with the whole, you know, Evans failure to make the catch and, and kind of miss. And uh, they stewed over that for so long and it was just kind of like a storm. And then that first half, they're all ticked off because they thought they went and they were getting, you know, they were just playing way too conservatively. And, and, you know, there's angry players in the locker room and it just, they just came out in that second half and that's as bad as you can whip a team physically. I mean, between bold, bold and bullying McCordy and the end zone on those two. And the, obviously no one is going to ever forget that Pollard hit. That was one of the most vicious hits I've, I've ever witnessed in person. Um, so it was that, and then you got the Super Bowl. obviously the whole season was like a blur, Tony. And, you know, my challenge were, I, I you know, what do I write about that? I mean, my challenge was, you know, uh, what's what can I do that, you know, people may not have heard. Obviously, anyone's going to enjoy a story about that team. You know, it's it's so much, you know, brings back great memories. It's fun to read about a winner, fun to catch up with old guys. But, you know, I, and my challenge was, well, can I write anything different? Can can I get some new stuff? And so I was going to write the story of that season through some of the main moments, you know, the Tory Smith game, uh, you know, with him playing with a heavy heart and the fourth and twenty nine with Ray Rice and. But the problem was I had a hard time boiling it, boiling it down to four or five moments because there was so much that season. You know, when you also throw in the offensive coordinator search and and raise last ride and all that. So that was my biggest challenge, just kind of uh, kind of condensing that story into five or six moments of that season because there's so much that went into that team kind of scaling the NFL mountaintop. And, and it was just awesome. The whole thing was like a blur to me. It was my first full year on the beat. I still really didn't know what I was doing. And I, you know, I kind of had some regrets that year. I should have done this, should have done that. I just wasn't good enough at my job at that point to pull some of that stuff off. But yeah, what an enjoyable, uh, what an enjoyable ride that was. And, uh, you know, not taking any shots at the current situation, but 
you mentioned it earlier. It was really nice to get away with writing, get away from writing about Lamar Jackson's contract and the OC search for a little bit to write about that that team and catch up with some of those old guys because because uh, it was you know so many good memories about that and so much fun. Jeff, you mentioned trying to uncover or maybe share some new revelations to fans that maybe they weren't aware of that happened during that 2012 season. And a couple of that I made note of, and and by the way, for our listeners, fantastic article. If you haven't signed up for the athletic, it's a great publication. And if for no other reason than to just to follow Jeff and not just because he's on here with me, but because he does it better than anybody on the beat. But all that said, Jeff, I did want to ask a little bit more about the fourth and 29. And I found Joe Flacco's comments to be refreshing because, you know, I've heard so much. I've, I've heard, listen to people, fans, friends of mine talk about the fourth and 29. And I said, if they ran that same thing 100 times, they got the only time it was going to be successful. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And you know, Joe is, you know him, he's just such a unique, uh, you know, all shucks so well, you know, that was just kind of him. And um, it's funny to look back on it now. Like, could you imagine if they did that now? And like, look, Trent, um, not Trent, Kirk Cousins did that in the Giants playoff game where he threw short of the sticks and it wasn't yes. fourth and 29 and he just was obliterated all week. That was fourth and 29 and, and Joe threw the ball two yards past the line of scrimmage. And I thought Jimmy, you know, I, I asked Jimmy Smith about it. I said, Jimmy, did, were you thinking, what the hell is Joe doing? And he goes, Jeff, do you know how many times I thought, what the hell is Joe doing? <laughs> and it's just kind of like Joe. I mean, he could be so maddening at times. So it's kind of because he did things his way. And uh, he admits now, yeah, he looks at the play now and he's just like, I mean, honestly, I, I would have hated to not give one of my receivers a shot to make like a contested catch or like catch it. You know, you never know what could happen. You could draw a, a DPI or something. Right. And, him admitting straight out, yeah, it was probably not a smart play by me. And I don't think he did that after the fact. And, and you know, he may have, I, I, don't, I don't remember, but, you know, him admitting that, yeah, I didn't do the right thing there. I kind of got bailed out uh, w- w- was pretty, uh, pretty hilarious. And, you know, I you know, so much stuff I didn't get into. Like I had so many stories about the main play and, uh, and Dennis Pitta was like, I couldn't even find anyone to block. Like I was, Dennis was like, I was worthless on that play. Like, and I went back and watched and Dennis is running around in the middle of the field, trying to find anybody to put a body on. And he never quite did. He never got anybody. I mean, other than the Bolden block uh, on Weddle where he just flattened him. It's not like there was a, a, you know, a litany of great downfield blocks on that play. That was just Ray Rice and his, his elusiveness and his, and his will and, and, and just uh, making a play. It, it's pretty unreal if you think about it and, you know, you don't want to play the what if game, but if they lost that game and then you had that stretch uh, down the end, which they had, you never know. It's revisionist history, you know, but still you kn- that would, they would have been in a completely different spot. So uh, as it turns out, yeah, that, you know, not only was that one of the most kind of miracle plays of the season, miraculous plays of the season, but it was also, you know, you look back on it, it was one of the most, you know, important to put him in a position where uh, that, that bad streak down the end of the season didn't really sink where they were at. Yeah, I remember watching that game with a bunch of friends at a bar and 
fourth and 20. When I saw him dump the ball off to Ray Reyes, <laughs> I put my beer down and walked away. I didn't even see the end of the play. I walked away. I said, this is over. And then yeah. I hear this cheering. I'm like, no. <laughs> <I didn't. laughs> yeah. <laughs> it yeah. It converted it. And then you're right about the bold and block. Without that bold and block, that conversion doesn't happen. Yeah, I remember. I, I was at that game and – that place, Tony, was a dump, like Qualcomm Stadium. And oh, yeah, I was, I've, I've been there a couple times, yes. Yeah, I was sitting in a press box seat, and it was dripping from the ceiling, and I was catching I was catching water on my head all game, and I'm like, get get me out of here, you know? And I, and I thought that was it. I mean, I thought there's no way that, that they won that game, that they were winning that game. But, yeah, that was just unbelievable, that play. One of the other things you went into a little bit more than I had seen in the past and I guess you collected this information from the guys you talked to was about the so-called mutiny. You know, when the Ravens, I think they got waxed by the Texans down yeah, in Houston yeah. and it was a really ugly, like 41 to 13. I'm, I'm just off the top of my head. I don't know what the final score was, but I think it um, was that. Yeah. Okay. So my, my wife teases me. She said, how do you remember things like that? And you can't remember what <laughs> I asked you to get at the store, you know, <laughs> but, but that said it was, the mutiny happened shortly thereafter because John Harbaugh wanted to have these guys going through a padded practice and the team just said, no way. And so talk about that and what you were able to uncover with those conversations. Yeah. You know, that story, I forgot who did it. it may have been Mike Silver, like the day after the Super Bowl, or maybe it was even Super Bowl week. Uh, that story got some legs. And I mean, I knew there were at times during the season, there was some tension with that team, but I never realized the extent of how ugly that got. And, and I mean, players still talk about, you know, Terrell, Terrell Suggs isn't one to, you know, kind of focus on that stuff. And he still says that's unlike any meeting that I've ever been at. And, and, you know, he's funny. He was just like, listen, I didn't say a word in that meeting. I just come back and remember he, he came back from his, what was it? His Achilles. Right. And that was the first game he played. The first game he played. So he's like, I hadn't been practicing all year. The last thing I was going to do was kind of complain about practice. Like I just, so I sat there and I shut my mouth and, but other people didn't, you know, and, and, you know, part of it, and I didn't even get into, get into this uh, Tony in the story because there's so much to get into uh, uh, otherwise, but, Part of, I think, the disconnect was Harbaugh, before that team meeting, had met with his leadership council and told, you know, he has this leadership council made up of, like, some of the veteran leaders, and he told them that he wanted to do that, and it got a really negative response, and John heard the players out then, and I think the players left that meeting, at least according to the players I talked to, thinking that John was, okay, we're not going to do that. So then when they get into the big auditorium and he puts the practice schedule up and it's still called for pull, you know, the uh, padded practices, I think that's when they kind of, that's when the kind of the explosion occurred. And, you know, uh, Harbaugh was not happy with the way they finished that Dallas game. Their run defense wasn't very good that year for a lot of the year. Uh, and I think John was seeing that team slip a little bit. And he's like, you know what, uh, we got to turn this around let's get in pads uh obviously they were just embarrassed in houston let's get in pads let's figure this out so uh you see it from his standpoint but you know obviously the players weren't buying it um and uh you know it it, it depends who you ask you know i i think 
you know, Jimmy Smith acknowledged that's kind of the first time where where we kind of felt felt like, you know what, John does care what we think. He does care about us. And a lot of people think that was kind of a turning point between John's relationship with the players. But then you look at it and all the guys that spoke in that or were most outspoken in that, Ed Reed, Harry Williams, and Bernard Pollard weren't there the, the next year. Now, some of that, you know, people love to paint this, you know, Harbaugh wanted them out there because they talked. No, like that, you know, John, they didn't, they didn't have money to pay anybody that year. If, if you recall, I mean, they had to trade Bolden who wasn't even involved in that meeting uh, because they had, you know, they didn't have, feel like they had the money. And, and, and obviously those decisions went above John, John and Car- Bernard Pollard obviously did not get along. I mean, there's no secret there. And, and Kerry Williams, I think kind of was, was a ticking time bomb at times. He nearly got himself ejected from the Super Bowl and probably should have, uh, which would have been a huge play in that game because he put his hands on officials. So uh, I think they felt like they got the best Kerry Williams had to offer and it was time to move on and he got paid nicely. So I don't attribute all those guys not being back the next year to that. Uh, but there's no, you know, there's there's no question that, that those guys, uh, there were some guys that were really getting after John. And that was a, since that was a very critical moment for that team to kind of come together and, and to kind of put some of that stuff behind. And, and whether, you know, Joe didn't think it was a big deal in the end, but Joe Flacco doesn't think much is a big deal. But there were other guys that felt like that kind of was one of the turning points of the season. And, and Ray was on IR at that time, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. Ray was like, it was the Cowboy game, right? That I think Ray tore his tricep. And yeah, yeah Suggs was Suggs was sitting there with his cell phone and kind of texting Ray while that whole meeting was going on. Whether you know, as coaches were yelling back at its players and all that, and you know, the Suggs's message for Ray is, "We need you back here. This is getting bad." So. Yeah, I mean, who knows? Would that not have happened if Ray Lewis uh, was in there? Would would John have been more likely to listen to Ray in, in the meeting with his leadership council if Ray told him it was not a good idea? Um, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I think Ed Reed and John grew to have a decent relationship, got on the same page by the time Ed was gone here. Um, I think they have a decent relationship today. So uh, who who knows? But, you know, Ray, it started with Ed. There's no question. Ed was kind of the catalyst there. And then you had guys like Pollard and Kerry Williams who who really got vocal. And it kind of took another step when those guys got involved. I thought it was interesting in the 30 for 30 with the, Balt- uh, the bullies from Baltimore that they talk about, or Billick mentioned that when they were struggling against the- – the Browns in their first possession, they thought they were going to get another shutout. And the Browns went 84 yards and scored a touchdown. And Billick went up to Ray and he said, not now. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I and Billick said, I made a left towards the cooler and I left it alone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. And the rest uh, of the I, game, they got 30 yards total of offense. <laughs> I mean, if you look, if you look at that 2000, one of the things and I get into it with with people on Twitter all the time about this and you know this whole narrative that John doesn't like alpha males doesn't like people who talk back I, I mean and people use that 2012 season kind of an excuse uh, or excuse me not as an excuse as sort of backing their reasoning 
for that. I, I, I don't know. I just find that so ridiculous. I mean, if you look at some of the big personalities they've had in recent years, then, you know, uh, if Marcus Peters leaves in free agency, Tony, this, this off season, it's not going to be because Harbaugh didn't like the fact that he yelled back at him this year. Uh, what was that? During whatever game that was, I forgot. Um, this year it was the, what was it? The, it was I think it was Buffalo. 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 Yeah, Buffalo. Yeah, but yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it's not going to be because of that. It's going to be because the organization just doesn't, you know, uh, A, they're on a tight cap and, and they didn't think that they could get that, uh, get, you know, Peters took a decline this year, whether he could return and he's going to be healthier this year, who knows? But, you know, they Marcus Peters and John Harbaugh have had a really good relationship and there ain't, there's not many guys you can describe more as alpha males than Marcus Peters. I've seen Eric Weddle and John get into it with each other right in front of us at practice. Is Eric Weddle not an alpha male? Like this whole thing. I mean, the careers some of these guys had like Yonda and, and all these guys who flourished under Harbaugh. It, there's, there's no question. There's things you could say about John Harbaugh that people don't like and, and all that. I get all that. I'm not, I'm not defending him, but this whole narrative that he doesn't stand for, people talking to him or telling him they disagree john invites conflict like john likes the give and take he likes going back and forth with guys uh even if they don't agree he likes when people stand up for themselves and and and, you know portray their case so i don't know i mean that whole reading that you know remind it reminded me when i was reporting that story and talking to those guys about about the mutiny um you know how what a ridiculous criticism that is that you know because a lot of players said he handled that great yeah it was difficult and yeah it was tough for anybody to listen to and it was uncomfortable for everybody but um you know they certainly came out of it better and and, and, you know you could say I, i thought the other thing about john john was amazing super bowl week it was such a contrast between him and his brother i mean the 49ers were kind of over it and uptight, it seemed. And I was there. I I, I kind of covered the 49ers' first press conference when they came off the plane. And those guys kind of filtered in. And granted, they had kind of a long, you know, they had a long flight from the West Coast. Those guys acted like they didn't want to be there. And, and uh, you know, and it was just kind of, I don't know. And yet John was so welcoming that week and upbeat and positive and didn't get tired of all the media stuff. So I thought the Super Bowl, how John had handled that and had that team ready to play was his finest hour. But, you know, you certainly could make a case of when you look at some of the positive things he's done, how he handled that so-called mutiny, um, you, you know, was another one of his really strong moments during his tenure here in Baltimore. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that, how he handled the media during Super Bowl 47 week. And then you compare that to Brian Billick. To me, his one of his finest hours was how he handled the media with all the Ray Lewis drama going on yeah. Super Bowl 35. So interesting take on that. One thing I did want to get to that I, I didn't see a lot of in your article, and I, I, I know you, you probably whittled down your piece from – however many words it was to begin with to what 3,500 words. I think it was about that. I mean, when I first, I ne- I'm not a, a guy that hits word count until I'm done and I get everything else 
everything that I think should be in it. And then I'll hit word count. And I think I did that with that story. And it was like 5,000 words. I was like, whoa, I got to start cutting and, you know, doing some cutting and condensing here. So yeah, I ended up cutting probably about over 1,500 words out of that piece at one point. And that's a, like an article and a half in and of itself. But <laughs> with, with that in mind, you had touched upon the Mile High Miracle and you guys being out in the car and, and freezing your asses off without the defroster working and whatnot. But talk a little bit more maybe with the players share with you that you weren't able to get into that particular article in terms of the Mile High Miracle and, and what went down off the record or behind the scenes during that game or after that. Yeah, game. yeah. And as I said, I, the reason why I stayed away from that is, you know, a couple weeks earlier on the exact 10-year anniversary of the Mile High Miracle – we did a, a a separate piece on that where I talked to a bunch of players and the my colleague Lucas, who also worked on it, he talked to a bunch of Broncos. Um, and it's just you know, uh, you know, um, Marshall Yonda is is one of the biggest competitors, and and Marshall Yonda says straight out, he's like, look, I tell my family all the time. Nine out of ten times that Broncos team would have beaten us, and and he's just like. It was a great win. It was special, but he's like that Broncos team was so much better than us. And it was just interesting to say, to see Marshall say that, but yet, you know, I talked to Suggs too. And Suggs is like, I don't want to even hear that. Like Suggs at this Suggs at this stage of his career is not happy that it's even called the Meyer high miracle because Suggs take on it is they scored two touchdowns on special teams. We never give up special teams touchdowns. We whipped them. We dominated them. That's Suggs' thought on the game. Like, yeah, we wanted to need the Jacoby thing. It should have never came to that. We should have beat them by two touchdowns because, the you know, the whole – you know, the whole holiday kickoff. So, um, you know, it's kind of interesting players' perspectives about it uh, all year. And you know what, Tony? One story, and I wrote it. I had it in the piece, both pieces, and I had to get it out because both of them just got too big. I think the play, and Joe Flacco considers this one of the best throws of his career. I know and what you're going to say, too. I, but go ahead. Yep. I, I know exactly yep. what you're going to say. And, and, and it was this, it's the one play from the Super Bowl season that doesn't get talked about enough because it didn't result in points. You know, when they were backed up, it was third and long, backed up again inside their own five-yard line, and he hit Dennis Pitta. Just It was one of those situations where they looked at each other. I, I, I did a lot of reporting on that play and got Joe and Dennis's perspective. They sort of looked, e looked at each other. Um, you know, former Raven, I believe it was former Raven Jimmy Leonard, who had creeped up on Pitta and kind of Joe felt like he kind of gave away the coverage they're playing in that. Joe knew what he was going, knew where he was going on that play the entire time and just made a perfect throw and Pitta made a tough catch. And that got him out of a huge hole. If that is incomplete, they're punting from their end zone. The ball was a freaking rock. It was going to be tough for Sam Cook to make a good punt. You got the guy who's returning it already had two return scores early in the day. At worst, Denver's probably getting the ball at midfield. Uh, at worst, could have been even deeper than that. And they're, you know, one or two first downs away from winning the, the game. And and the Mile High Miracle would have came in a loss because uh, that was in overtime. So uh, that's kind of the one play I wish I talked a little more about. And and I thought I think it's one of the most underappreciated big plays in, in, in Ravens history. And it was it was all Flacco and it was all Pitt. It was a heck of a throw and catch.
It, it really was. And you're right. It was Jim Leonard. Cause I, I remember writing an article about that as well. And, didn't notice it first until I went back and looked at the film a little bit more and saw that it was Jim Leonard who was who was doubling down on on the receiver of Pitta. So yeah, what a great play, and I hundred percent agree with you on that one. Now, anything else from that game? I, I know that one of the things that I've listened to John Harbaugh discuss, perhaps even read about it, was the fact that Joe, prior to the Mile High Miracle. <laughs> decided to run the football when they didn't have any timeouts. And and I was losing, just like I was losing my mind Mm -hmm. on 4th and 29, I was losing my mind on that play too. Oh, yeah. And when I taught, you know, uh, Jameson also did something on the Mile High Miracle. So we we got John aside, me and Jameson did. um, It was, I believe it was before the Week 17 game um, against Cincinnati. And John was, John had fun talking about it. And he just like he was so angry. He was yelling at Joe, throw the ball away. And and Joe just kind of runs up the middle. And you know, and and it's funny. It was just that was Joe. He was just unfazed sometimes. But sometimes you wanted him to pick it up and and, and be quicker, make quicker decisions. And, and uh yeah, they were uh they weren't happy. John wasn't exactly happy with uh Joe Flacco there until he he unfurled that that throw downfield that Jacoby ran under. I mean, and then the other thing about that game, and it was just really about the playoff run. And, and Suggs brought this up. Yonder brought this up. Pitta. All of them, to a man, sort of downplayed the Cam Cameron change, right? Um, Flacco basically said, I'd hate for people to think that Cam Cameron need to get fired for us to go on a run. Now they all said, you know, it was kind of a rallying thing and it kind of sent a message that, look, we need to get this fixed. We need to turn around. It, it put more of an onus on a, on the players. And I think Jim Caldwell's kind of experience and demeanor was sort of a settling, you know, thing for that offense, but to a man, they all thought that the, factor that led to that offensive explosion was the offensive line changes and it's another thing that you know we talked about a little bit but probably didn't get the attention that it deserved during that Super Bowl run is inserting a fresh and healthy and motivated uh things he weren't he wasn't for much of his time in Baltimore Brian McKinney at left tackle moving Michael Orr to right tackle where he was probably most comfortable. And he worked really well with Marshall Yonda on his side and then moving Osemele to guard, which he was probably, which, you know, as his career showed, he was at best at guard. Um, You know, that, that was one of the biggest moves. You look at the fronts they played and that just in the playoff, you know, alone, you know, you had Mathis and Freeney, I believe in the the Colts and um you, you know you had the uh Denver Von Miller and Doomerville and and in the Super Bowl you had the Smith brothers for San Francisco and that front was just dominant and dominated teams and Patriots always had ways of getting the quarterback and that offensive line was dominant I mean they, you can't say enough about how good Joe just had more time I mean that's not to say he didn't get hit or sacked some in the playoffs but uh, Joe just had more time and more confidence in in the protection, and and they just look like a different offense. I I think you know people could say, well, what would have happened if McKinney got inserted in Week Five? Would they've been? Who knows? But the fact is, 
Bryant McKinney was always talented. That never was his issue. Him being in shape, motivated, and locked in on the game plan was the issue. And uh, they made sure that that he his full attention was on kind of making a statement by how they handled that situation. And man, he was a wall. I, I mean, they and I, I'll never forget kind of the job Osemele did on Justin Smith. Man, they were beating the piss out of some really good pass rushers. They they were they were dominant. I mean, that offensive line was so good, and, and it was such a big difference that probably never got the credit it deserved during that run. Jeff, you mentioned that you had a discussion with one of the Denver beat guys from the Athletic when you guys were doing the Mile High Miracle piece. Did I'm just interested in what some of their takes were from that game, including Peyton Manning taking a knee at the end of regulation when I, when I thought he did the Ravens a favor by doing exactly that. Uh, yeah. I mean, and I, we touched a little bit on it in the, in the oral history and, and I think it was John Fox's call. I don't think it was Peyton Manning's call, but that to me looked like that was a shell shock team. They just couldn't believe what just had hit them. Um, and it, it just, you know, you look at it now, I think there was 30 seconds left and they had timeouts and they didn't even try to advance the ball. I remember I, I was in the press box and I said to Preston, who was sitting next to me, or they did they take a knee and the whole crowd started booing. Um, I, I couldn't believe that. I think that was a pretty good testament towards what the Ravens defense were doing, was doing to them. And, and you know, I, talk to Ray Lewis a little bit about that game in particular. And, and, and he said, you know, he and Ed Reed went into Dean Peace's office during the week before that game and said, look, we need to do something different, man. Like uh, Peyton's on to us. Like we need to mix up coverages. We need to take certain things away. Um, and we need to keep the ball in front of us. And, uh, so Dean obviously was receptive and, and uh, you know, they wanted Peyton Manning to have to go down to the field on long drives and dink and dunk his way down the field rather than kind of getting some big plays over the top. And um, so they, they didn't, they, they mostly did that. I mean, one of the plays where they didn't do it, they gave up the touchdown, I believe it was to Stokely. So, uh, that was huge, uh, and how they changed the game plan and made them work for everything. And, and the fact of the matter is at his age, um, and, and, and his, you know, in that weather, you know, Peyton Manning just didn't really have the arm strength to tear them apart at that stage of the career. Plus it's late in the season where I'm sure he was tired, and that was perfectly executed. They kept everything in front of him and said, look, sooner or later, he's going to give us one and he's going to make a mistake. If we make him work for everything, hit him when we can, but don't give up any layups. And and that's really what they did. I mean, they had he had the one pick six to Corey Graham, but that was kind of a tip pass. I think it went off Shockey Brown and Graham was kind of sitting there. Uh, but his interception in overtime by Corey Graham was just him forcing the ball, kind of throwing the ball across his body. He was uncomfortable because they forced him out of the pocket. He was kind of on the run a little bit, which is where you want him outside the pocket. And he kind of gave him one. And, and that's what uh, put, you know, obviously put Justin Tucker in position uh, to kick the, the game, to kick the field goal that got him to the AFC title game. I want to get into the discussion about the Ravens' next offensive coordinator. But before I do, I want to remind our listeners that Word on the Street is brought to you by Caesars Maryland. Download the Caesars app today to get in on some great Super Bowl specials. 
using Caesar's promo code Russell Picks. That's R U S S E L L P I C S. Will provide Maryland betters with a fifteen hundred dollar first bet for the Super Bowl or any other game this week. Any losses will be met with an immediate refund via a bet credit. And even if you bet less than $100 on your first wager, you'll still receive a $100 credit in bet credit. So download the Caesars app, Caesars Maryland, and wager away for the Super Bowl. So offensive coordinator, you mentioned, Jeff, that the the Ravens didn't seem to really put the finger of blame or cast the finger of blame towards Cam Cameron, but it ended up being a wake-up call. Compare and contrast that situation to the Ravens' current situation with Greg Roman, who has now since moved on. I guess it was a mutual parting of ways. We know what, you know what that means. But the just compare and contrast those two situations, if you could, from a player's perspective. Well, I, I think I think with um, with Cam. In talking, you know, another guy talked to us, Tory Smith. Tory Smith says he still is not sure that was necessary, you know. And and I I think the them moving on to Roman or excuse me, them moving on from Cam when they did was a huge surprise. I mean, that's not something you expect at that juncture of the season. And, and I think players are still surprised about it. Um, and um, meanwhile, with the Roman situation, I, I mean, look. I think everybody knew it was coming, you know, something needed to change, something needed to give. The Dolphins wasn't heading in the right direction. Um, I think people recognize, and we heard a little bit above that, I guess, um, you know, Mark Andrews, who lives out in Arizona, kind of did the uh, Super Bowl, uh, what is it called, the uh, – media media circuit um you know media row or whatever it's called yeah 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 radio row there you go thanks tony and and and, and he you know he mentioned like we need to we need to be better pass you like if if you can't pass it's you know it's going to hold you back and it just became so obvious that a change was necessary i mean obviously i think receivers had it tough there was not, not a whole lot of you know, probably not a whole lot of empathy in that room for for Greg Roman. It's tough, you know, but look, I think Greg Roman had some strengths. I think it was time for him to go. I think they had plateaued. Um, I think he probably could have made a case that maybe it was a year later than, than maybe they should have made a change. Um, and maybe Roman should have been the one to gone last offseason and not wink. Yeah, I, I think you could perfectly make that case. Um but there's also several players that that owed a lot, should owe a lot to Roman, just in the style of offense they played and how he utilized them. Uh, it wasn't all bad. Uh, you just can't look at Roman's record and the statistics they put up with him. I mean, you can, you know, those numbers are very good. More often than not, they played really good winning football and scored points. But it just had gotten to the point where a change had to be made. Um, they weren't getting any better. The offense was regressing. You can't just chalk it up to injuries every year. They did not evolve. They did not stay ahead like they had vowed to do. And it's time to bring in somebody else. And, and, and not only that, Tony, and I think you probably agree with this. I think it's time probably to change the whole offensive philosophy. I have no problem them believing that they need to have a really good running team especially if Lamar's in the quarterback and, and that suits them well with what they've done on the offensive line and who they have at quarterback. I have no issues with that. 
but there's no way of them getting where they want to go without becoming more dynamic and dangerous in the passing game. And then that's going to be the charge of the new OC, um, you know, to better marry, for lack of a better word, the passing and run games. They just seem to be separate. You know, the, the Ravens have never, it's been a while since 2019 before they showed the ability to be dangerous in both. Um, and, and that that's what they kind of need to get back to. I, I think people are so caught up. Are we going to be a run first team, a pass first team? I don't really care, but they just need to be better. Like, I don't mind if they're a run first team, if they still have the ability, if a team's taken away from the run, taking away the run to connect downfield and make plays and back guys off the line of scrimmage. They just haven't shown that they have the ability the last couple of years to back guys off. So, um, you know, it's, you can make a case that this is the most important hire of John Harbaugh's Ravens career here with where they are as a team, the situation with Lamar. Um, It'll be interesting. It's certainly not been for a lack of, uh, they've certainly done plenty of due diligence on the hire, man. uh, You know, it's, at least a dozen guys, probably more, and and not even accounted in that dozen of interviews or multiple guys John has talked to that basically just said, you know what, I'm you know appreciate you're interested. I'm probably just not in the you know I'm not interested for whatever reason. Um, you know, like Bill O'Brien, John talked to Bill O'Brien, you know, Alabama OC, former Texans coach, and John and Bill O'Brien are, are pretty good friends. And, you know, it had become clear that Bill O'Brien sort of was far down the road with the Patriots. So that kind of won. John talked to Frank Reich, former Colts head coach. Frank Reich wanted to give head coaching a shot still. Wasn't really ready to jump in as an OC yet. Um, But, you know, John has a good relationship with him. So, uh, you know, they moved on him. Those weren't official interviews, but he really did. He he talked to a lot of potential people. He There's three or four more that he'd apparently like to talk to from the Super Bowl staffs. Uh, so uh, we're not done here uh, by any means. Now, uh, the Ravens Brain Trust is heading down to, uh, you know, one of Steve Bishotti's, uh, uh, uh homes um, this week for their organizational meetings. Um, so maybe something happens there as a result. But uh, the, the, the part of me is like, you've already waited this long. Why not wait two or three more days to see if uh, to make sure you talk to everybody? You know, the the Texans, um, the Titans just hired a, a, their offensive coordinator, not a guy that was really on the Ravens radar. It's not like they're losing out on all these people they want by waiting. So uh, get the right guy. This is a huge hire. And if you have to take four or five extra days to do it, by all means, it's not it's not really holding any anybody up here. Jeff, there's a lot of people, mostly fans, and I'm sure you've seen this in your interactions on Twitter, that believe that it doesn't really matter who the Ravens' next offensive coordinator is, that John's kind of pulling the strings anyway. Your thoughts on on that opinion, which isn't a minority opinion by any stretch of imagination, at least if you uh, gauge Twitter. So I'm just wondering if you think that John's fingerprints are on the offense or is this going to be something that is – uh, the new offensive coordinator will have complete autonomy over. Um, I think John's fingerprints are going to be on the offense because I think what NFL coach doesn't, uh, what NFL head coach. I mean, it, it's it, it has. I mean, he has to. Like, I, I just feel like it's kind of an oversimplification for people to think. Okay, you know, it, it's funny. I hear people blame Harbaugh because he doesn't have an offensive background and he 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 doesn't get involved enough to prevent Greg Roman from doing this or doing that. And now there's seemingly concern that he'd be too involved. I mean, 
I get it a little bit, Tony, where I think people just feel like this whole style, um, you know, run first, play de good defense, play good special teams, um, rather than kind of go in there looking to win, put up 40 points and win a wide open game. I, I guess there's a, a resistance to that style because they don't do it the way the Chiefs do it and the way so many other the, uh, the successful teams have done it in recent years. So, yeah, maybe, you know, maybe Harbaugh has got to get out of his comfort zone a little with how he wants the team to play and and, and want to open things up more and encourage their offensive coordinator to kind of open things up more. I, I mean, I think that's probably part of this hire, uh, but I don't think they need to completely change their mentality. Um, I think they're, you know, their, their philosophy just kind of needs to evolve a little bit uh, um, and they need to get the personnel for it to evolve a little bit. And, and that's not just John, although he is a part of it. That's also Eric, uh, you know, like this whole we're going to win with backs and tight ends. I, I think that needs to stop. Uh, you know, I think they they need to, you know, they need to invest in the wide receiver room this offseason and, and they need to have a play caller who's going to be a little more aggressive and challenging teams down the field uh, um you know so uh, in recent years i think their personnel wasn't really suited to do that and that's an understatement so yeah i i get it i think people kind of go back to john's football mentality and feel like he's not capable of of playing any other way and it's got to be this i don't necessarily think that i mean i think we saw a big shift in john when lamar became their quarterback and they played in an entirely different way um now can he kind of go in another direction a little bit i don't think the whole thing needs to be revamped i have no problem with them running the ball a lot uh but yeah without a complimentary passing game they're going they're going nowhere and, and uh, he needs to get a guy in there um, that that is going to open things up a little bit and, and get more open, scheme more open guys. And and Eric needs to get uh, more threats on the outside. I think that all goes without saying. So th there's a lot of people, Harbaugh included, uh, that are they're going to need to be accountable for them to get this passing game where, uh, you know, it, it, it's good enough for them to make a playoff run. You just brought up something that I was going to ask you, so I'll, I'll I'll restate the question as I wanted to originally present it to you. But when if you're an offensive coordinator, a potential offensive coordinator coming to interview with the Ravens, there's a few things that I'm concerned about if I'm that candidate. I'm concerned whether or not Lamar Jackson stays or goes. I'm concerned about the wide receiver room. I'm concerned about the organization's ability to improve that wide receiver room with some limited cap space. And then I'm also concerned if the Ravens don't finish 2023 successfully, where is John Harbaugh after that? And I'm going to join his staff. So those to me are four really big things. And I'm really curious as to, I, I know you don't know this, but I'm really curious as to how the Ravens are addressing those things. But don't you think that, those are things that could keep some ideal candidates away. Hundred percent, hundred percent. I, I mean, especially the quarterback. Um, you, you know, and, and yeah, it's not talked about a lot of times because he's had so much success and and he's won so much, and they're there, kind of, you know, 10, 10 playoff appearances, fifteen years, right? But I mean, if they. If they go one and done this coming year, I don't want to, you know, it's it's easy to speculate now, but uh, there is going to be a point where Steve Bishotti just says, you know what, uh, stability is great, but 
we need to we need to push forward. I'm not seeing progress here, and I'm not saying he's at that point. He's obviously not. But if they have another year where the you know they get ousted in the playoffs and 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 you know finish second in the AFC North or whatever, yeah, I mean you have to wonder uh, how long John will be around still. But the other issues, yeah, there's no question. There's a case. The thing I would say, the only thing I would say. Uh, opposite that tony is you know look at these jobs that are available like you know there's only 32 of these offensive coordinator jobs and not all of them are play calling jobs either so you know the ones where you kind of you know the people want to be nfl play callers right so um you know so the ravens still have that to offer they have a play calling job for a team that's perennially in the hunt for a playoffs and for a team that's known for having a stable and winning organization. I, I think that still speaks, speaks highly. I still think that sets them apart from a lot of these other jobs. And I also think two things, one, my understanding from talking to different, you know, people involved in the processes, the Ravens are painting a, an optimistic picture that Lamar is going to be their quarterback going forward. Now, I don't think they made any guarantees. I think anybody who has been involved in the game know there's no way they can guarantee it until that signature is on the dotted line. But I also think the reality is you're either coaching Lamar or you're going to coach a team that trades Lamar and gets a, a, a ton of picks and probably – is going to have a pretty good bridge quarterback anyway. I think there's got to be a confidence level that they're going to get. This is not going to be a rebuilding team where they're going to be willing to lose a couple of years so they can get the number one overall pick, um, you know, and draft, uh, you know, uh, Archie Manning in a couple of years or whatever Arch Manning, I guess his son's name is, or his uh, grandson's name is. So I think, you know, if you're an offensive coordinator candidate, you know, you're going to have play calling, responsibilities that's big you know you're working for a team that's known for being stable and and a winning organization that's going to have a shot and if you're not coaching Lamar you're probably coaching a team that has three first round picks in its pocket and they're going to be able to do some things at the quarterback position that could be pretty exciting and and you know you're going to have a good defense and special team so uh, yeah I think all those things you said are issues and might could scare away a candidate or two but if you look at the available offensive coordinator jobs this offseason, uh, you know, the Chargers one is obviously one that everyone was raving about. But if they don't go to the playoffs, Staley's gone. And he may be gone if they don't win a playoff game. And, and then where are you? You know, where are you as a coordinator? So there was even some drawbacks to that job. And there just weren't a ton of jobs with everything in place, a, a stable winning organization, a, 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 a coach that was in a head coach that's in really good standing um, and a quarterback that you wanted to work with. And, and so I still think the Ravens still had many more positives than negatives in their favor. Um, and they're still a pretty attractive team for the available uh, offensive coordinator candidates. My last question for you, Jeff. Eric Bieniemy has been said to be of interest to the Ravens. There's been a lot of reports about the two may talk once the Chiefs are out of the playoffs or once the Super Bowl is over. I'm just curious as to why someone like Eric Bieniemy, who has had success in Kansas City, they've been, what, three Super Bowls in the last four or five years, and why would he leave the stability of that position 
when Patrick Mahomes is there to take a lateral move to come to Baltimore? Yeah, I, I mean, Eric Bieniemy. I think I read, Tony, he's interviewed – He's had interviews since 2009 with more than half the teams in the NFL. And he's still, you know, he's still there now, you know, some of them he may not, he may have turned down or whatever, but yeah, I mean, there's legitimate questions about him as a candidate and why teams haven't liked him. There were some issues that you can go to his Wikipedia page and look at some of his background issues he had earlier in his career. I don't know if that's holding teams back. Obviously, uh, there's been plenty of talk about the race issue and, the, and, and that, you know, and how that relates. But, yeah, it, it's, it's surprising that he hasn't he hasn't gotten an opportunity. Um, but you look at it. Five, I think this is his fifth year as Chiefs offensive coordinator. And unless he gets the Colts head coaching job, and I think he's still up for that, but so is a lot of people. Um, no one's really written that he's the favorite there. Um, old friend Wink Martindale is apparently still in the mix there too. But um, if he doesn't get a head coaching job this year, I mean, don't you – gotta ask if you're him is this is what we're doing really putting me in the best situation to get the get the head coaching job I covet like why you know like so I he doesn't have full-time play calling responsibilities I think you saw in the Bengals Chiefs game it sure looked like Andy Reid particularly in the key moments was running the show it sure looked like Patrick Mahomes was going right to Andy Reid during timeouts and during stoppages to go over stuff and Andy Reid was the one in 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 Patrick Mahomes ear so I think he's kind of Andy Reid is is just heralded for his ability to call an offense and his design he's unbelievable at it one of the best ever and and it just seems to be the enemies in that shadow where people kind of credit Andy Reid for it not him and how do you get out of that how do you you kind of get the respect you deserve or, or you feel like you deserve I mean, you come to Baltimore and you turn around that passing offense and the Ravens have a top three type offense and, and they're still running the ball well, but yet, the, you know, Lamar's playing again like 2019 Lamar. I would have to think that reflects really well on you a, a, as an assistant coach and that may get you back towards the top of these head coaching lists. Um, so that's why, um, you know, you could see him available. Plus, I mean, at, there's times, Tony, where – and I think this was kind of with Wink and the Ravens, not comparing the exact same wish, but Wink's relationship and, and Harbaugh's relationship, they're still they're still close. They still talk to this day, right? But I think, you know, dealing with each other day-to-day, -day, things have just kind of run its course. I think they were just ready for a change, for a, for a new voice in, the, in each other's ear and to do something new. So I, I think that was beneficial for both sides. I mean, at some point, the Reed's going to think, you know what? It'd probably be better if Eric gets out of here um, and does something on his own, and, and and it may help him get to where he wants to be better than we're helping him here every year. He's on the last year of his contract, and Matt Nagy, the former Bears coach, is apparently – grown pretty close with Patrick Mahomes in Kansas City. I forgot his title, offensive assistant, maybe pass game coordinator. He's kind of viewed potentially as the Chiefs' next offensive coordinator. So they have that guy on board already if they want. So they could easily, if they lose the enemy, promote Nagy and just kind of pick up where they left off. So uh, there's a lot of reasons that that, that could take place, um, and, and it wouldn't be easy you know, it, it wouldn't be right to kind of dismiss that possibility. I mean, maybe I'm in the minority here, Tony, but I, I don't even think 
I think people seem to think, well, this is all the enemy's job. If, if, you know, the Ravens are waiting, it means they're going to hire him or he's, they're going to get him if he wants to come. I don't even know that. I mean, I, I think some of these candidates John Harbaugh has met with um, have made a really good impression. I think there's legitimately questions about, um, you know, Bienemy, you know, what he do away from Andy Reid and, and some of the, some of those things. Um, and, and I don't, I don't necessarily know that he's even the favorite. I, I think, uh, oh, he has a shot at it for sure. If the Ravens are waiting, um, they're waiting for that. But I also think they're waiting to talk, talk to maybe Matt Nagy. There's a wide receiver coach in the Kansas city that's looked at as kind of a future star. Um, I don't blame Meyer. I, I, I probably botched, botched that. And then the Eagles have a couple, uh, a couple assistants, including the uh, quarterback coach Johnson, who I think the Ravens would like to talk to. So we'll see if it gets to that point, Tony. Um, you know, I, I think Munkin is a guy that's kind of really stood out to the Ravens in this, the Georgia, uh, offensive court uh offensive coordinator so um i think they feel like there's four or five guys they'd be really happy with at this point it's just finding the best fit making sure they have all that information and uh as i said if they've waited this long you might as well wait till a couple days after the super bowl to to try to uh you know make sure you make the best decision i don't think they're missing out on anybody by not making a decision by now jeff Really great stuff. Thank you so much for all of your time. How can people sign up for The Athletic and where can they find you on Twitter? Um, um, I'm just at Jeff Zrebeck uh, on Twitter. And um, The Athletic is, yeah, we we always, I don't know if there's a deal at this moment, but we always have pretty good deals. And and you can click off one of my articles and there'll be a opportunity here, that, opportunity here to sign up. I know one of our, we do all 32. So one of the assignments this week was ranking the Ravens top 10 free agents. And it was hard, Tony. I mean, obviously Lamar has to be number one, even though he has no shot at being a free agent, but um, you, you know, you kind of, he's still a pending free agent. So you had to consider him. But after the first couple, it became hard because a lot of those guys are kind of grouped the same. So I, I had to do that uh for might come out tomorrow i believe so we'll, we'll keep going you know there's going to be a lot of stuff this off season combines in a couple weeks i'm planning to be in indianapolis uh so huge off season for this team and, and there's going to be a lot of issues uh, a lot of topics i should say that are, are going to demand all of our attention yeah probably one of the most defining off seasons for the ravens in, in their history i would agree with that i sure would i mean it seemed like after the Super Bowl with all the guys that left and all the things that went on that offseason with paying Flacco. But that stuff's a little easier to do when you have the Super Bowl and all the celebrations. And, you know, when, when, when you've only won, what is it, two playoff games in 10 years, that's that's a little harder to do. Uh, and, and everything's kind of magnified nowadays in the social media world where everything looks like, oh, the end of the world or this, that. I mean, you do listen to some Ravens fans these days, and, and it honestly, they're starting to sound like long-suffering Browns fans. It's kind of sad, <laughs> um, but there's definitely people that that want want and need some 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 good news this off season. Absolutely, that's Jeff Zarebeck. I'm Tony Lombardi. Jeff is with the Athletic. You've been listening to Word on the Street, a product of Russell Street Report. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Take care. <laughs>